We are Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit anthemforall.org and follow at Anthem Church Chicago. So we are um, in our series in Philippians. I'm going to ask if you have a Bible uh, for you to turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. So Philippians chapter 1, if you can turn in your Bibles there. Um, a friend of mine taught me, uh, Gentiles eat pork chops, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is how you can remember. Gentiles eat pork chops. Um, so Philippians is after Ephesians, before Colossians. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how you can remember the order of those, of those four books. Uh, Hollywood is amazing at writing some of the most awe-inspiring, um, but also some of the most cheesy uh, pre-battle or pre-war speeches. Whether it's a, a football team going in to face one of their rivals, or whether it's an, an army in a, in a war movie about to go and face the enemy, there are some amazingly inspiring uh, pre-war speeches, but also some really cheesy ones as well. Perhaps the, the cheesiest of them all, if you've seen the movie Independence Day, is when uh, Bill Pullman, who is playing the, 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 he, he's playing the president of America, just as the alien invasion is about to happen, he stands before this, uh, this group of people and he says, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive today we celebrate our Independence Day. I mean, it is Hollywood cheese in its absolute best. My, my personal favorite pre-battle speech is in probably what I consider one of the best movies around, and that is the movie um, The Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. And in the opening scene, Maximus, uh, just super short, super simple, he says to his troops, at my signal, unleash hell. Love it, just so inspiring. You wanna jump in and get, and, and get going. Believe it or not, um, I was actually on Google and searching some of these kind of uh, pre-battle speeches, and there are various websites that have rankings of these pre-battle speeches, and the one that is consistently number one time and time again is Mel Gibson's kind of Australian, American, Scottish accent, uh, covered in war paint, as he says something to the effect of, they can take our lives but they can never take our freedom. That's the best you get. I don't know how to do a Scottish accent. They may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. <laughs> there you go. Jesus in the book of Revelation is painted or, or, or is pictured in a number of different ways. And the book of Revelation chapter six describes this incredible scene of, of Jesus riding on a white horse, the, the white symbolizing Jesus's purity and his holiness. And, and it goes on to say that he has a bow in his hand, speaking of his, his power and his authority. He's crowned with a, with a victor's crown. And it says these words, it says, he is riding as a conqueror bent on conquest. Jesus is not riding as a conqueror on some sort of military conquest. He's riding out to, to conquer hearts. He's riding out to, to rescue people, as Deb shared today, rescue people from, from sin and from sickness and from Satan and from death. And the incredible thing is, as Jesus is riding into battle, he has also got a pre-battle or a pre-kind of war rally cry to each of us. And it's simply this, come, follow me. That's Jesus's rally cry. That's Jesus's war cry to us, to us. come, follow me. I mentioned that we are uh, in our second week 
of our series through the book of Philippians, and we're going to journey through this book in eight parts. And uh, the series title that we have given this particular series is Pressing On, Walking in the Ways of Jesus. We have to stop and ask ourselves the question, what are we pressing on towards, or what are we pressing on to? Paul writes in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, a, a verse that we're going to get to in some t- uh, 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 within the series. Paul writes, I'm pressing on to take hold, to seize, to apprehend. I'm pressing on to, to apprehend that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Paul's goal was quite simply Jesus' goal for him. And I pray that that would be our goal too, that that our goal as we journey through this book, our our intention would be to take hold of Jesus's goal for each of us. And that quite simply is that we would find complete and full satisfaction in him. And as we find satisfaction in him, that we would be transformed and made into his likeness. How do we press on? We press on quite simply by walking in the ways of Jesus by doing the very thing that Jesus invites us to, and that is to to follow him, to walk in his ways, to to walk in Jesus's footsteps, to follow along the path that Jesus had already walked. This idea of of walking or walking in the ways of righteousness or, or following the path of righteousness or walking in the ways of Jesus, this is language that is very familiar in the scriptures, but perhaps not so perhaps not so familiar for us living in an urban context. We have to acknowledge that a path is very different to a sidewalk. We go outside and we see sidewalks across the city. A sidewalk is, is laid in concrete once, and it's there for decades, whether you walk on it or not. A path is altogether different. A path is cut across the countryside as one begins to walk on that path over and over again. Initially, it's a little difficult. Initially, it can be hard. You're not sure, not sure where to go. But as you walk on that path over and over and over again, that path begins to be etched across the countryside. And that describes something of what it's like to follow in the ways of Jesus. That's what the series is about, learning to, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, learning to, to follow where, where he has already walked so that we can take hold of that for which God has taken hold of us for. Last week, Aidan started the, the series and, and, and he taught us last week around how this, how this church in Philippi was birthed, how it was planted. And he looked at the, 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 the chapter in Acts chapter 16. We don't have time to turn there, but it's good to read that particular chapter in the book of Acts because it describes the birth or the planting of that particular church. I, I wanna take two minutes and just very quickly just make a couple comments about church planting. Because church planting to, to Anthem is, is very, very important. It is a passion. It is a calling upon this particular church. 15 years ago, Anthem Church was, was planted in response to, to the call of the Lord. We've, we've planted six churches in the last five years. And, and our desire is to do that more and more. Our desire is, not to, is to follow the prompting of the Lord. But I want to say very, very clearly that our intention in planting churches is never to place a greater trust or emphasis in the pragmatic um, response to how we do this. Church can so easily become systematized. Church can so easily become uh, 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 where a greater dependence is placed on the systems of man 
rather than the power of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. Systems are important. It's important for us to, 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 to put systems in place. But friends, I wanna say, we never wanna be a church that trusts more in the, in, in the strength of man rather than the power of the Lord. These last few months, for some reason, I've, I've begun to be exposed or begun to see some of the underbelly of, of the church in America. And, and let me tell you, I don't ever want us to, to, to put our faith in things that we can do rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. This church in Philippi was birthed because Paul responded to a vision he saw from the Lord. And when he went into Philippi in response to the voice of the Lord, he preached the power of the supernatural gospel and the kingdom of God. And a businesswoman, a religious businesswoman got saved. A young slave girl who was oppressed by the devil got set free. And a hard-hearted Gentile jailer, was, his heart was softened because of the gospel. And on the back of those three encounters with the power of God, this church was birthed. The voice of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. I wanna make this commitment and to say that Anthem Church, in all the planting we will do, but in the leading of Anthem Church, the voice of God and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit will always be our greatest desire. That's how we need to trust God to, to see church, our church grow and other churches planted. And so 10 years on from, from the planting of this church, Paul is now writing back to the church in Philippi to, to thank them for the partnership that they have with him in the gospel. Look at verse three, four, and five in, verse, in chapter one. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. As we work through the book of Philippians, you're gonna see joy or rejoice come over and over again because of the, of the partnership in the gospel from this day until now. That, that word partnership, we, we, we can't overemphasize the fellowship side of it and we can't overemphasize the functional side of it. The, 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 the understanding of that word is both fellowship along with function. As Chicagoans, we should know this, but we're a family doing the Father's business. That's what, that's what we're about when we come to, to kingdom things. We're a family doing the Father's business. There's the fellowship and there's the functional side of it as well. And so with that as the introduction, let's look at verse 12 of chapter one. We're gonna work our way all the way through to verse 26. It's quite a lengthy passage of scripture, but you can follow on in your, in your Bibles or the screen behind me. Paul writes, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance 
I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed and will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then this verse in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a verse. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Incredible passage, and I, I think there are many things that we can learn from this passage, but, but, but I would put forward to you the, 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 one of the things, perhaps the most important truth coming from this particular passage is simply this. What you are living for, what you're living for, not what you're living through, what you're living for, not what you're living through, will determine whether you're able to stand up against hard times. The circumstances of your life, the things that you are going through, do not determine your ability to stand firm. But it is your definition of life, what you are living for, that will enable you to stand in the face of hardships and trials. Paul defined life in a way that no matter what he went through, he was able to stand firm. And so the question right at the beginning has to be asked for each of us here, what is your definition of life? What are you living for? What does life mean to you? What are the most important things to you? What, what, if, what if what was taken away, if that thing was taken away, that it would, it would cause you to fall? And, and Paul, if asked that question, would surely answer along the lines, surely of, of verse 21. For to me, for me to live Paul says, my definition of life is Christ. I know this is an obvious thing to say, but, but Paul starts this particular section of Philippians chapter one by, by uh, acknowledging that at times life can be brutally hard. And, and as I say, I, I, say, I said that this, this, is, this is an obvious thing to say, but hopefully as we go through this text, you'll begin to understand why it's an, an important thing nonetheless for us to say, look at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what, what has happened to Paul? It's so much more than just the reality of him being thrown into a, a prison in Rome and for 24 hours a day, he's chained to a prison guard. It's so much more than that. If you wanna look at the backstory, go and read Acts 21 through Acts 28, where we see false accusation and Paul standing trial and, and, and is accused of things he never did. And eventually he's, he's thrown in prison in Rome. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul will actually summarize these trials that he went through. And I wanna just read this to us. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and, uh, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone through and have gone, often gone without sleep. 
I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and I've been naked. I don't read these, this particular passage. I don't, I don't read what Paul went through to say, friends, this is real hardship. Now pull yourself together. Your, your struggles does not compare to, to Paul's as something of what my elder daughter did to me six weeks ago on, as I was facing certain death on the side of the mountain when she said to me, Dad, pull yourself together. You're a grown man. I, I'm not saying that in any way today. And I'm, I, I'm not saying this so that in, in any way for, for, for you to compare your trial to Paul's. But what I want, the point that I want to make, and I hope you'll be able to follow my, my, my thinking or, or my reasoning, is that I think for those of us who follow Jesus, we have an, an even harder time embracing or understanding the trials that come with life than others. Hard times are hard. Hard times are hard, and that is true for every person here and every person in us in the city and nations, whether they are followers of Jesus or not. Hard times leave us with many unanswered questions. But I think what is particularly difficult for followers of Jesus to understand when it comes to hard times is something in our hearts has come alive by the Spirit of God where we've gotten a glimpse of God's perfect, pure uh, a kingdom that is, that is both here and yet still to come. We've gotten a glimpse of this, of this kingdom without pain and without suffering. And not only that, we've seen many friends who've given up so much to serve God and serve his kingdom only for them to go through some of the most unbelievably difficult hardships and trials. And it leaves us asking why. You've heard Deb stand up here before from this pulpit in our series through the book of Psalms and to share somehow we believe the lie that because we had given up everything in South Africa 15 years ago to move over to, to the States to plant this church that somehow we would be immune from facing tragedy or difficulty. And we believed that until the tragedy of last year happened to our family. I think we struggle when it comes to, to, to hard times because we see so many people giving up so much for God's kingdom, and yet they're going through hard times themselves. Today's sermon is not a deep dive into the, the understanding suffering and understanding hard times. We're not going to answer the question why, as in, as in why am I going through this? And I'm, we're not going to answer the question who, as in who is causing this. But I, I want to emphasize that through hard times and through difficulty, firstly, God is never caught off guard. And secondly, he is deeply involved in comforting and strengthening us and using everything that we face to somehow bring about the advancing of his kingdom and the glory of his name. I also don't want to do a deep dive into what is our response in hard times. We had a look at that through the Psalm series when I preached on Psalm 130. But I will say this, in hard times, friends, we've got to give ourselves and one another the permission to weep. I think sometimes when we are going through hard times and we are crying out to God, somehow we think we're failing God when we're being honest with Him. Somehow we think we're, we're lacking faith when we're crying out to God in anguish and perhaps even in anger. We've got to give ourselves permission to weep. I've said this before, when we, when we feel deeply we have to be allowed to express freely. 
But we can't just stay at that place of weeping. In the midst of having that permission to weep, we also have to embrace the power and the posture of worship as David does time and time again through the book of Psalms and Paul does in this particular passage. Paul is essentially saying something like this, Lord, I'm not giving in. I will contend contend because I know that no struggle, no matter how intense, no matter how overwhelming, is not the final word. And it can never dilute your goodness or your grace or your mercy. And although I don't see it right away and perhaps I will never see it in its entirety, but Lord, you promise that you will work all things for good. And you promise to weave every detail towards your plan of bringing about good in my life. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And that's what he's getting at as we continue in the, in the end of, of verse 12. Look at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Those guards that were chained to Paul didn't have a chance. I mean, Paul is, is chained to them for 24 hours a day and every four hours, those guards would be changed. And they didn't have a chance but to hear the gospel and to see the power of the kingdom of God on display through Paul's life. One of the commentators I read wrote this, let Paul loose into the world, he'll turn the world upside down. Let Paul loose in, in Caesar's palace, he'll turn the palace upside down. I love that. He, carry, he carries on in verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul is revealing that he's getting a glimpse of the fact that God somehow is turning his situation into gold. And he's got a glimpse of the fact that God is somehow at work through the trial and through the difficulty. And I wanna say, friends, for each of us, although we might not see it right now, and although we might never see it fully in this life, God is turning every situation that we face somehow into gold. Leland writes a song, Waiting for You, and there's this line which has just gripped me this week. He says, "One, one day through heaven's door, I'll find what it all was for. One day through heaven's door, I'll find all, I'll find what it all was for. But God is not just turning Paul's situation into gold. He's turning Paul into gold. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That, that word deliverance is a, is a, is a poor translation. Uh, most commentators agree that the better translation is for my salvation. Not speaking of the fact that Paul needed to be saved, but speaking of the reality of present day salvation, that we are growing more and more into the image of Christ. What Paul is saying is through these hardships he's going through, God is transforming Paul more and more into the image of Jesus. When we go through hard times, we often make the mistake of interpreting the season through the perspective of what we can see and what we know and what we can touch. Instead of trusting or finding grace in God to see something of the eternal perspective of what God is doing. And we struggle so with that because we can't reconcile heaven with earth or or time, finite time with eternity. 
But as believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus reconciles, Jesus causes heaven and earth to intersect. And Jesus causes time and eternity to intersect. And, it, and he opens our eyes to the reality of eternity so that we can see by faith something of what God is doing. I used this illustration many years ago and I, I, found, I saw this, an illustration that Francis Chan did once. He was using it in the context of God speaking to us. But I think this illustration is just as powerful when we're trying to wrestle with what it means when we're going through, through hard times. This is a, a rope that I think is 24 feet long or so. Um, that really, a pick, don't you want to pull that? That was meant to be far more dramatic than, than it actually was. <laughs> there you go. So, I mean, this, this rope stretches for 24 feet, but imagine it stretched for eternity. Imagine it just went on and on and on forever. And, and, and this rope represents our lives. This rope represents the fullness of our lives that goes from now until eternity, forever. And at the tip, I've put some black duct tape, which represents the 90 years we have here on earth. And all of us, or most of us in this room, certainly most people in our city, we live for this. We live with our eyes exclusively on these 30 years. If, if truth be told, if we took the last third of this. Most of us are living our entire lives for the last third of these 90 years. Just saving up enough for retirement, saving up enough so that I can have my dream house. We're focusing so much on this that we're forgetting all of this. The reason why we struggle with all of this is because this is how is what is, is easy to understand because it's, it's what we can see, it's what we can know, it's what we can touch. And this, this eternity is something that feels so other, so out there. But, but this is the context from which God is allowing things to happen in our lives. But unfortunately, we often spend our time interpreting it from this perspective. Paul writes, God is preparing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs the struggles we go through in the here and now. And we struggle so because, because this has to be accessed by faith. But I want to say, as followers of Jesus, God wants to open our eyes to something of his eternal perspective, not just pragmatically try and figure out what's going on in the here and now. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This, all of this, far outweighs just this. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, not on these 90 years. We fix our eyes on what is unseen, Jesus and heaven and eternity. Paul writes in Colossians, he says, fix your hearts on things above. Fix your minds on things above. For, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I want to say, friends, we need to know that this entire picture is the context from which God is at work through our lives, even in the hard times, which doesn't, can I say, doesn't necessarily answer why, but it does settle us in the reality that God is always in control and working things out in our lives. The world says to us, you know, don't be so heavenly minded because you'll be no earthly good. To which I will say, 
because of what Paul writes in Colossians, the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we will be. Because eternity and heaven is the greater reality than the 90 years we spend here on earth. Paul spends or Paul starts this passage by acknowledging that life at times can be hard. And he can do that freely because he understands an eternal perspective, which brings us to the second thing. Because he has an eternal perspective, he can define his life in a certain way. Remember those questions we asked at the very beginning? What is your definition of life? What are you living for? What does life mean to you? What is the most important thing about life for you? And Paul answers the question in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Paul is saying, as long as I have Jesus, no matter what comes my way, as hard as it might be, no matter what comes my way, as brutal as it may be, as long as I have Jesus, I'm still living. And friends, I've got to ask that question of you. What is your answer to that question? For me to live is finance. For me to live is career success. For me to live is a perfectly healthy body. For me, for me personally for so long, for me to live was ministry success. I, I felt so inadequate, so, so like I was constantly falling short of, of God's will for my life because I was trying to measure what God was doing through tangible things like numbers and just, I mean, and even what is success? What is, how do you quantify ministry success? And I had to realize that that, that, that pales into insignificance compared to for me to live is Christ. There's only one bottom line that will stand up to anything, and that is the reality of for me to live is Christ. Remember what I was driving home at the very beginning, not what, what you are living for, or in this case, who you are living for, not what you are living through determines your ability to stand in the midst of trial. Paul's been honest about the fact that life can, at times can be hard. And he's revealed the definition for life. But we've got to end by asking the question, how does Paul come up with such a definition? How is he able to say, for me to live is Christ? And, and, and I want to remind you that, that Paul is building his life on the example of Jesus. Paul is, is doing everything he can to walk in the way of Jesus like the series is trying to teach us. How do we walk in the way of Jesus? So, so for Paul to come to that definition of for me to live as Christ, he's looking at his Savior, he's looking at his Lord and, saying, and, and he's saying, Lord, teach me how I can live in the way that you live. John 17 as Jesus is praying that prayer before he goes to the cross, he reveals that thing that everything else in his life was subservient to. Jesus opens, opens up a, a picture into his, into his thinking to show us that there was, there was one thing that was greater than anything else. Jesus prays this, and now I sanctify, I dedicate myself to them, to us, as a holy sacrifice, so that they, so that we will be sanctified, so that we will live as fully dedicated to God and be made holy by your truth. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying is, is, Lord, Father, Father God, I am giving everything of myself so that they, so that we can step into everything that God has for us. 
The writer in the book of Hebrews says something very similar in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, for the joy set before him, knowing that we would be his, for the joy set before him, he endured the agony of the cross. What is, what is the writer of the book of Hebrews saying? What, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this. Listen to this. This is what Jesus is saying. For me to live is you. That's what Jesus is saying. For me to live is you. Everything is subservient to, to that, that desire, that, 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 that desire, that longing for every single one of us to come into the fullness of, of the Father's plan. For me to live, Jesus says, is you. To which we have to respond. Not just if we hear it, but if we fully comprehend this, we have to respond. Jesus, if for you to live is me, then for me to live is you. That has to be our response to this, friends. Jesus, if, if, if for you to live is me, then for me to live is you. And don't see this as, as Jesus demanding an equal measure of the love and the devotion that he gives us. Because we cannot, we cannot, please be free. We cannot give Jesus the equal amount of perfection and love and devotion and faith that he has given us. Our love and our faith and our devotion is imperfect. But Jesus' perfection overshadows our imperfection. Jesus' perfection overshadows the imperfection of our devotion and the imperfection of our love and the imperfection of our faith, especially when we go through hard times. When we go through hard times, our faith fails. Our love falls short. Our devotion is inconsistent. But Jesus is not only the author of our faith and love and devotion. He is the perfecter of our faith and love and devotion. And that's what gets us through from here to wherever the trial ends or until he returns. Because it's his perfect love that carries us and his perfect devotion that carries us. And his perfect faith that overshadows our imperfection. How do we respond to Jesus' invitation to come follow me? We respond with, with, these, with these words. Even though we're facing difficult times, we respond with these words. Jesus, if for you to live is me, then for me to live is you. We're going to celebrate the cross through taking bread and drinking grape juice as a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. We're gonna celebrate the reality that Jesus declares over every single one of you here today, for me to live is you. We're gonna celebrate that, but we're also gonna, we're also gonna do, as we celebrate that, we're also gonna emulate Jesus's if for me to live is you by coming before him and saying, Father, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Would you take just my simple devotion, the little that I can bring. And would you allow Jesus, your, your perfection, to overshadow my, my perfection? Some of you here today might be thinking to yourself, what on earth can I bring to Jesus? Jesus, have you seen me? In the Old Testament, when they would bring a lamb 
to be sacrificed. They, they might have come in, in, in broken, torn clothes. But when they brought the lamb to the priest, the priest didn't look at the way the person who brought the lamb was dressed. The priest studied the lamb. He looked the lamb over to make sure that the lamb was perfect. And then he declared these words, it is acceptable. The lamb is acceptable. And friends, let's come with that attitude today as we break bread. We're not coming on the back of our faith. We're not coming on the back of our perfect devotion. We're coming on the back of the fact that Jesus, the lamb, is perfect. Thanks again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us, anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.